This podcast brought to you by ACES, the American Society of Information Science and Technology, the Society for Information Professionals, by the IA Summit, the premier gathering place for information architects and other user experience professionals, by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesnarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Axure and Morin for sponsoring Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IA Summit. How can we stay effective, be engaged, and create great work in an environment that is ever-changing and in a constant state of flux? Say hello to slime mold, an organism that has spent the last few million years evolving a powerful set of survival techniques that are wonderfully relevant for people grappling in shifting organizational environments. Experienced designer at Adaptive Path Kate Rudder describes how this fascinating life form holds intriguing lessons for today's knowledge worker, from sensing and responding to environments that become hostile to using the power of signals to create alignment and collective action. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. A couple things you should know about me. One is that uh, I really love making things visual, so I like to use a lot of craft in the work that I do. I also spend quite a bit of my time wondering, right? Not necessarily wondering about where I'm going to eat lunch or what time I should be leaving for home, but just wondering about where's the industry going, what are all these weird devices going to do to the types of work that we make. And I do a lot of wondering and clicking around. And when I find something that, I, that I'm really excited about, I try and find a good way to share that back out. Sometime that takes me pretty deep into metaphor land. And that's where I've been for a while in the slime mold, and I'm excited to share that with you today. I work for a company, Adaptive Path. We're in San Francisco. And we work on experience projects with um, companies to help make their products easy and fun to use. <clears throat> Let me tell you about how I got involved with the slime mold. So, Nothing is more interesting and fun than seeing an old friend, right? Like just recognizing them across the room. You're like, hey, I haven't seen you forever. Well, when I was 18, I was reading Smithsonian Magazine. And I saw this article. It was like this big. But I remembered it because it had this incredibly beautiful picture of this mold. And the slime mold, what a horrible name is that, right? Like they should fire their branding agency because it's terrible. But I read this little snippet of an article. And it, was, it just really spoke to me. And I remembered it for a long time. Then in 2001, I saw this article, which is hunting down slime molds. And it said the same thing, which is they're not animals or plants. They can't decide. And that was the little hook when I was 18 that really grabbed me. Because I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I've lived my life on that line. What's cool about that line is that it allows you to see both sides of the situation, right? And that's one thing that Slime Mold does really, really well. And I think that has importance for our teams and for how great work can happen, because it's about um, being able to change and adapt yourself to an ever-shifting environment. Does that sound, any of you guys deal with shifting environments? Just kind of curious, a <laughs> little bit? Yeah, adaptive path, right, okay. So this is a quote by, of course, one of our favorite artists of Spinal Tap. <laughs> and his premise, he's also a member of the Slime Mold fan club, his premise is that the Slime Mold have been running the world for a long time. And they certainly have the pedigree. They've been around for millions of years. <clears throat> so what's a, a little bit about them? Where do they live? They live here. They live in the soft, dark, multi edges of the forest, right? The stuff that, like, when you turn over a rock, you don't know what you're going to find. That's where they live. And this is what they look like. There's a whole diversity of them, a whole kingdom of these incredibly beautiful mold forms. A lot of these, by the way, are from Flickr. There's a slime mold pool that kind of doesn't work, really, on the slime mold pool. But um, I encourage you to go take a look at that. And uh, here's what they sound like. Anybody want to take a shot? Oh, it's good. Okay, Mike Somacides, yes. I actually want us to say all of this together, okay? It's, it's like introduction, hi, slime mold. Oh, what's your real name? My real name is Mixomycetes. Excellent. They are all glad to meet you too. Now there's two different kinds of slime mold. And I'm gonna be a little bit um, creative misreading with some of the metaphors that I'm pulling from them. One is a cellular slime mold. It's a very distinctive life form, and that's primarily where we're going to spend our time. Then there's another one, which goes by the name of, of dog vomit, 
slime mold. I am not kidding you. It's dog vomit slime mold. We'll see a picture of it. Um, and that does something slightly different. But the one we're going to be talking about today is this. Anyone want to take a shot? <laughs> okay, we're going to say this together. Dictyostelia mycota. That's a great phrase, right? Like that's going to get you a pickup line, right? <laughs> At the next bar. I dare you. If anybody uses this to pick someone up, which actually was something I found in my travails around the interwebs looking for interesting things, was a woman who said top tips for girls how to be attractive was have interesting conversations. I always get good conversations when I bring up slime mold. I am not kidding you. So it works. It's a great pickup line. <clears throat> We're going to start out just getting oriented, since this might be new for, for a bunch of folks, with what the slime mold life cycle looks like. Okay? So generally, it looks like this. This is the stuff that's plant-like. We've got the amoeba and then an aggregation where it's pulling together. And then we have the stuff that's like animal-ish where it's a little bit more mo modile, can actually move. This is where these single-celled organisms come together, and they're not a swarm and they're not a colony. They're actually a unit, they're a multicellular single organism. And that phase change is pretty important. Scientists love that stuff, right? And then they go through the stocking and the fruiting and the spore. And this is a fairly easy way. I'm sure you can get your heads around this. It's not an unusual life cycle. But I kind of thought we could bring it a little bigger to life. So we're going to do a reenactment of the slime mold life cycle right here, right now. Okay? You guys up for that? Yeah. Excellent. So you're going to be a part of this because the big thing about slime mold is it always uses its environment. Always. It never lets go of that. So you guys are going to be the forest floor. Okay? Now the forest floor has three states. You have food. You're losing food. You have no food. And our slime mold is going to respond to that and go through and emulate the life cycle based on that. So we have some intrepid volunteers who are noticeable by using their environment. They are robed. And they are going to be our slime mold here today. <laughs> so the first piece of the, of the slime mold life cycle is phase one. So forest floor, put your hands up. You all got food. You can wave it if you like it, a little bit in the breeze. And our slime mold is circulating. They're eating. They're happy. They're sensing. They're signaling and growing, right? The world is a beautiful place. But then suddenly, halt. Food supply. You start to go down a little bit. Something is amiss in the environment. Now our slime mold is sensing. They're getting a little agitated. They're starting to come together for support and mutual recognition. They're starting to cluster. They're clustering faster. <laughs> they are finding others. And they're starting to aggregate into this, this single life form. <laughs> Some are faster than others. <laughs> now comes the dance of the slime mold. Phase three, they're slugging and crawling to a new home. They're seeking quietly and fervently some new forest that has a food supply to sustain them. Sometimes they move very slowly. Sometimes they move a little faster. <laughs> <laughs> and then, hark, food supply. It's a new forest. Bring up those hands. <gasps> Slime mold, what do you hear? You hear yourself settling, putting down roots. This is it. And now, it's time for a new life. You're actually starting to fruit. <laughs> and, and look, you've already dispersed and spored. That couldn't have gone better. Thank you, Slimo. <laughs> I feel like a member of the polyphonic spree. I guess we were very okay. We can just set this quietly aside if you like. Gosh. Has anybody else opened their umbrella from the hotel? Because that's terrifying. Like, that's a health hazard. So the last piece of it, of course, is, you know, rinse, repeat as needed. 
the shampoo industry would hate it if they printed as needed on their labels. So, um, <clears throat> by the way, y'all did awesome. Thanks so much. Woo! <clears throat> now, I wouldn't be a very good person at the IA Summit if I didn't have a model of what was actually going on as far as the taxonomy and the relationships around this life form, right? So this is a fairly traditional model um, of the plant and animal kingdom. You can see our my, mix of my CDs up there in the, in the corner. But what's really interesting is here's another line, right? Like this line goes straight between plants and animals. Those little things can't get off that line. The thing about that line is that it's this whole open area for exploring and experimenting with things around complexity theory and around self-organizing systems and around bottom-up um, uh, bottom behaviors. I can say that in this room. Um, and one of the people, have, is that, have any of you read this book, Evocative Objects? It's awesome. It's, it's this book, it's a collection of essays from thinkers and, and interesting, smart, articulate people about what they use to kind of connect to a creative place within their work. And so there's one about a cello, there's one about a, a part of the house, really wonderful collection. And Evelyn Fox Keller is a biologist and a feminist and a physicist um, affiliated with MIT, and she wrote about slime mold in this. That was her tool by which she was thinking through her relationship to our science. And what she found when she was doing research in slime molds is that um, the common research body of work was very concerned about what, help, what tells the slime mold to all start to cluster, right? Like you guys are putting your hands down, but our slime mold, they were pretty much figuring it out. They all came together on their own. And she was thinking, well, what is this? And everybody said the conventional theory was there's someone in charge. There is something we can't find with our scientific um, tools right now that is it's, it's the, the trigger, it's the tipping point. Something, someone is doing that. They just couldn't get away from that top-down theory. But she found it was something else. And that's one of the really cool things around slime mold we're gonna talk about today. Later on, how many of you, anybody read this book, Mergence? Right, the connected lives of anything that kind of has a greater than itself, swarms, colonies. Stephen Johnson starts the book talking about slime mold. And he talks about the sensing and the signaling mechanisms and how it truly can self-organize, even though it has no brain. Which is good, because sometimes we as humans can't self-organize and we have great brains, right? So maybe there's something there we should look at, actually. Um, but what's great about this book is for me it really helped shift my thinking from thinking about architecture as building houses or building um, individual units and instead thinking about my relationship to architecture as much more about relationship to urban design and urban planning and how cities evolve and emerge because they're these organic crucibles, kind of a bottom-up organization. So as a summary, I'm pretty convinced that slime mold is the patron saint of innovation, right? Any answer, any question that we can answer, let's look there first. So any questions so far? rerun. They'd make me pay them if I did it again. That, that would go on union hours. Um, <clears throat> here's a conceptual model. So we've gone through, you've seen the life form, you've seen one lens on that. Let's talk a little bit about the conceptual model of a slime mold. So you've got an organism, that's the things, those were the little people in the robes, and you've got the environment. And it's drawn this way really intentionally, right? Like this is a gooey, ooey line, and it overlaps. And somewhere in the middle is that line that slime mold is notorious for standing on. And what happens <clears throat> that's interesting here is the environment has attributes and the organism has responses to that. So if, you're, if the environment's great, slime mold is, is the organism's thriving. Not so great, it's striving. It's gonna, it's gonna work pretty hard. And if it's a hostile environment, the whole thing is working on trying to survive. <clears throat> We're not gonna talk about dying that's really depressing. But that is an option, right? In a hostile environment, you can survive or die. Kind of, it really is one of those binary choices. So there's a whole bunch of smaller things, smaller behaviors that then come off of that. If you think about this as like a mental model for what, how a slime mold behaves. Of, off of thriving, it's eating, growing, sensing, and, and signaling. Then it has much more complicated and complex behaviors that emerge after that when it gets into kind of a, a tricky spot. 
So what does this have to do with human beings and work and all of that? Where, am I, where are you going with this, Kate? I get that question all the time. Where I'm going with this <clears throat> is that we, the slime world's in constant conversation with its environment. And actually, that is something that I think as human beings, even though we are not slime mold, we are always trying to be in conversation with our environment. I don't think we're as explicit about, explicit about it as slime mold is. And I think we have something to learn from the mechanisms that slime mold has evolved to help deal with that very tight coupling between itself and its environment. <clears throat> I'm thinking about this more, where, when, I, when we say organism, what does that actually mean? Like, what is the human view of this? Well, individual and team is probably a pretty good place to start. You're one individual working within the, the matrix or the body of a team. That's your environment. But isn't a team an organism in relationship to a company? And isn't a company an organism in relationship to an industry? And isn't an industry in relationship to a market? I mean, how it's turtles all the way down, if you know that legend, right? Like, I mean, how, how big is this going to get? Well, I don't know, but I do know that from here on, when we're in the talk, that you should be thinking about all these different lenses to it, which brings a lot of complexity, and I'm sorry about that, but I also think that's where the excitement is, so I want to, you know, throw me a bone and kind of go with me on that one, okay? <clears throat> so if these behaviors and the relationship between individual and team or organism and environment is kind of a critical thing that we need to buy into, then what does behavior really look like? Well, um, <clears throat> I learned this, actually, in Christina Woodkey and, and Josh Porter's pre-con. I'd been trying to put my idea around a definition of behavior, but then this came up, right? And it's Lewin's Law. Are you, anybody familiar with this as, as a, a principle? Okay. And what it says is it's this equation, non-mathematical, but kind of mathematically structured, hook into that part of our brain, that the behavior is a function of a person and the environment. And this makes perfect sense, right? Like, you might not be the same behavioral person in a library that you would be in a, in a, at Burning Man, for example. So this makes perfect kind of intuitive sense. But I would actually posit that the environment is a function of people and their behavior, too. And we see this when we're building digital environments, right? We build the environment, people come in, they've got affordances for behavior, and that's how they behave. Well, if you've got step one and step two, it's not too far to get to step three, which is actually our behaviors are our environments. And I think looking at that and looking at team and happy work and how we facilitate positive creative environments, I think this type of lens changes a lot. I think it's beyond having a good manager or making sure you have enough budget to do the right work you want to do or can you print. It takes it out of that world and more about how do we behave, and what does that do to the environment that we want to participate in? <clears throat> so how do we behave now? Who can tell me what this is? Just, it's not a trick question. should be fairly clear for you guys. Okay, so org chart, site map. Weird, right? Because it's both. So we look at structures. We've been looking at structures like this for quite a while, especially in our field of practice. We've been making these things. We use these blueprints to create these territories, as Andrew Hinton would say, that the map becomes the territory. This becomes the way that people start to relate online. But Microsoft Office, any of the applications, has its own widget to make an org chart. And when you launch that, you get a little helpful thing, type the name here and the title here, and there's a power relationship. This is so baked in to how we think about how companies function that they built a widget for it. So the millions of people can make their own org charts? Do you even have that kind of charter? How bizarre. And here's another view. I'm sorry that the resolution on this isn't as good. Um, this is a, a concept model for Flickr, right? And it comes out, it gets trotted out a lot. In fact, I, every time I see it, I'm like, oh, it's beautiful. It's like looking at a vista of the Grand Canyon. Every time I see this, I'm excited and inspired. And if this is what's really happening online, then what does our org chart look like? Like, we don't have something that does that yet. We're starting to get into things like social graphs and relationship maps, et cetera, and those are going to mature, and there's, I think that's a really interesting area for information architects to play an important role in. Probably many of you or most of you already are, but we haven't got this burned into our mindset of how companies have structured themselves for supportive and effective work. 
and I think we need to. So if you start looking this across a balancing line, there are these attributes that line up with them. I'm gonna be sensitive here because I, I do believe that these are almost polarizing in a way, and they can be hot words for people. So there's this worldview around the hierarchical top-down taxonomies, um, environment based on authority and control. There's an alternate worldview, um, much more multidimensional, dynamic, systemic. People have a lot of associations. And these seem to make kind of, there's a lot of themes out there that, that show that these two different aspects on the spectrum are valid and real. And companies organize themselves across this way. And then you get long lists and people try and sort them out and figure out which world do they actually belong in, right? And then comes that line. And I think on this one, this is a really damaging line. Because I think anytime you put a line there, there's an assumption that we're gonna say or. Do you wanna be in that kind of company or in this kind of company? Oh, you're, you're in a big financial services term. No, no, I'm in a startup, right? And there's some correlation there. But I actually think that it's more important for us to start looking at us as an and world. Like we are gonna have to deal with some stuff on this part of the list and some stuff on this part of the list. That's gonna get very, very fuzzy very fast. So if you line it all up, the situation starts to evolve like this. We've got a world of and, two different spectrums, bunch of behavioral attribute stuff underneath it, and in the middle is gonna come our patron saint because the slime mold's been really good about tipping back and forth on that kind of balancing bar for a long time. I think increasingly to enjoy our work and to be happy in our jobs and to be meaningful members of productive teams, we need to start balancing this line too. So what can we learn about that constant conversation with our environment and balancing that line between those worldviews? <clears throat> well, we can understand the organism and we can understand the environment. And let's walk through that with the lens of slime mold. <clears throat> so I've, um, I've roughed out basically what the major sections of slime mold's life cycle are. We're gonna do exploring at the end, it can be at the beginning or at the end, um, because I think it's, it makes more sense there. Let's start with grappling. Grappling is when the environment is not happy and you're actually the slime is gonna need to start to respond, okay? So this is for a tough environment. Now put yourself into a role, you're a member of a team, the environment is tough, whatever that means to you in your organizational context. And the behaviors that slime mold uses to deal with that are sensing and signaling and clustering. And what you're seeing over here in the picture is not some kind of art form. It's actually the C-AMP, which is the cyclical AMP, which is a chemical signaling mechanism for when the slime mold is starving. So these are the attributes of a tough environment, right? And I tried to organize them loosely around things that the natural world gets and then things are more human-based, but like limited resources, power imbalances, shifting landscapes, natural or, or human-made, all the way down to this idea of lack of respect, no trust, kind of the erosive, corrosive, toxic types of things. So our forest floor is starting to look a little like this. A little dry, a little scary, a little sketchy, but you don't know it sucks yet, right? Like the sun will like always watch it, always watch it. So there's a point of heightened anxiety, but you're not ready to abandon ship, because that takes a lot of time and resources. Let's take a look at a video of what chemically happens when this CAMP cyclic um, acid starts to work. What we're looking at is a laboratory view, um, top down, of a colony of individual slime mold, and they've started their signaling mechanism to each other. And what's happening is, is as it's intensifying and they're all starting to signal more um, in a collective, it's starting to form this kind of pattern of this actual visual pattern that you can see. You can't see this in real life, but you can see it through the chemical spectrum of it. And what's fascinating is then you, I just have to go with the thought of, you know, in a company, someone tosses some big horrible email out and things spiral out of control, right? Like you kind of wonder if they didn't know that slime mold was doing that. Like it's been doing this for millions of years. After the spiraling, it goes through this blooming kind of thing. This is clearly, clearly, an animal in distress, right? Like there's something very, very wrong going on. It's a little sad, it's so beautiful, but, but it is definitely there. And I think we can um, 
we're going to talk about what those signals mean and what it means to signal strongly and, and really intensely. So there's one more that actually shows you what the slime mold does to respond. And on this one, what we're looking at now is, again, a, a science view, um, laboratory view. But these are those individual single-celled organisms. And they're getting agitated. They're getting their little CAMP um, signal. But watch that. Whew. How quickly it goes. It gets to a critical mass of agitation, and suddenly there's this sudden phase change. They're doing some studying on this called salt, moments of saltation. I know only enough about that that I did an internet search last night. I encourage you to look into it. It's, it's a sudden crystallizing phase change that happens in a situation or an organization. <clears throat> so what can we learn from the signals? Well, this is fairly cut and dried. Great signals are sticky, loud, and visual. And we know this from working at Adaptive Path with actual people, not with slime mold, although. So <clears throat> the takeaway is that we, we need to be able to help each other and ourselves make great signals. And many signals and terrific signals um, really help. Those are the things that will inform the environment and change the actual environment we're working in. So how do you do that? How many people have read this book? Anybody looked around at it? You know, <clears throat> Chip Heath spoke at one of the Adaptive Path events. And it was really inspiring. But then I went back and read the book. And it's an excellent, excellent book. And I can summarize it for you. There's a little acronym thingy. And it stands for the attributes that great signals have. And you can just write that down, not read the book. You know, but the book is really terrific. And it goes into a lot more detail. So I encourage you to read it. But essentially, you kind of get the point. There's also high volume signals. Thinking about what is it that's going to make it really visually resonant or really unmemorable. And these are all various different patterns for the types of CAMP signals that emerge with slime mold. And when I look at them, I think, OK, this might be a really light pattern. This one might be a really strong, very detailed pattern. Maybe if I'm concerned about the organization's environment, maybe if I'm concerned about a culture change or a value shift, I start by talking to my team, because it's pretty lightweight, like pretty ad hoc. Maybe I end up by giving a pretty big presentation to the board. It's going to take a lot more work, a lot more preparation. But thinking about the volume and the amplitude of our signals in the ways that we communicate as teams can be really helpful. And now I'm kind of dying to go through and figure out what are all the work things that go all in the middle, right? Because we'd love to fill in our, those gaps. And visual signals. This is an area that um, I think Adaptive Path and the work that I've been doing with clients, we kind of know this in, in our heads. But when you start practicing in a more visual, more pictorial way, it's extraordinary the difference that people have as far as memory, recognition, and participation. And I'm not sure if that's causation or correlation. I don't care. But what I do know is that it's made a lot of, of definite differences in the quality of relationships that we've built with, with other people. So shifting, um, can I do a quick time check? OK. So shifting. Um, <clears throat> Scott Birkin is a really smart guy. I could, did I put that up there? Yeah, very, very smart guy. In fact, last night I was feeling even more generous. And, uh, and I put this in because it's a little bit of a crux. Um, attend, having participated in a variety of HR or team, team type of meetings, you hear a lot of the same types of things. And I want to be thoughtful about how I talk about this, because I haven't said these words in the same way twice. Um, I hear things like, a bad apple will, will spoil the whole bin, right? And we, we know this. You know, that's, that's not really surprising. Um, what surprises me, though, is that every time I hear that, everyone says, oh, yeah, that's true. And who are all these bad apples? And do they all work at the same company? Or, and they only send out one or two as like ambassadors to piss us off, right? Because. <laughs> I've always been surprised by that. And, and we can't just constantly, we can't seem to understand and accept that the people in the room are part of those bad apples, right? Like, it's just us. It's all about the fit. It's not a pejorative term. It's about a fit. And you can choose to leave an environment if, you, if it's not going to be a fit. And I think as our companies have grown, it's a big celebration to get into a job. Because of the power structure, you feel accepted. But it feels really painful to leave a job, or to leave a role, or leave work. And 
I don't know that that has done us any good in the quality of our work. I think we need to get more permeable and more fluid with how we bring people into our work and how we take people out of that work. Because people change and organizations change, and you can't always guarantee that fit. Increasingly, we're starting to work more with people that aren't even part of our companies, right? Like with the public, user-generated content, go build our content site. How do they leave? We don't seem to care if they leave. We want to keep them, but we don't seem to be damaged or pissed off when they take off. But we do that with each other, we do that with our colleagues. And I think Slime Mold has a really interesting way to address that. So now we're in a hostile environment. Things are not going well. We've seen our, our bathrobed brethren start to slugging up and moving around. And hostile environments are very, very simple. They're not like tough environments. In a hostile environment, something is out to get you, trying to kill you. It might be natural, situational, doesn't matter. Still something trying to kill you. You're gonna end up looking like this. So how does slime mold do it? Let's watch. There's a little bit of previously on slime mold galactica going on as we, as we get it to cluster. Let's take a look at what they do. They're starting to form. You actually can't quite see it because it's a top-down view, but they're actually fairly tall, and then they fall over and become this slug thing, right? Apparently, you can have more than one. They all tried to do it together, but there were fraction groups or faction groups, so they're going to go out and do something different. Okay. They also do one other thing. So that is them slugging and getting ready to move. And this one is a little quick, but I want you to watch really closely. These are the fruiting bodies. So some of them are slugging. Then you'll notice that they get tall and they start to fruit. You'll also notice there's kind of some stuff in between them. Looks like they didn't quite get their signal aligned well enough. Okay, there we go. Right when it gets exciting, the logo comes on. Sorry about that. <clears throat> so what happens is as these fruiting bodies go out, some of them make it and some of them don't. And I think it's important to support our best work to figure out some questions for ourselves. Like, what won't you give up? When something gets hostile, what are you not going to give up? Where do you draw that line? And also, what are you okay leaving behind? And when this sounds very abstracted, maybe Slime Mold doesn't care if they have baggage, but for some organizations, leaving value systems behind, leaving tools behind other people is a really significant impact to how, how much um, productivity and, and pleasure we can we can bring to our daily work. And then how much are you gonna participate in the collective action? I don't think we're as intentional about asking ourselves that question when we sense a change in our environment. The slime mold's really clear. They've got three choices. You can be a cheater, be a martyr, or you can be a survivor. And you know, when you take a look at it, being a survivor's not all that great. <clears throat> so there's one last video. I want to talk about cheaters first. I love it because it's a pejorative term. We're like, cheaters, they're not towing the line. So Slime World actually has cheaters. This one, oh, hang on. A little bit of a different technical situation on this one. But it should work fine. Just a little weird. Yeah. Okay. So, a little bit of recap. We've got this aggregate into the slug. And then look what happens here. Okay, this front part is the martyrs. They're gonna sacrifice themselves, poor things. But they also get to lead, so that's not so bad, right? And then they've got this other stuff. And here's the cheaters. They're all stuck in, they're kind of broken out, kind of divide and conquer. They never win because the thing that keeps them from forming the stock and saving their own ass also keeps them from moving forward as a spore. Nature's really tricky with justice that way. So you think you've got it, oh, and then you're not. Now, the good news is that, let me get us back to our screen here. <clears throat> is that people are not slime mold. And actually, 
if, you, if people stop cheating, or if people, um, if everybody's cheating, then slime will even respond better for itself. Sorry about that, hang on. Okay. And so <clears throat> the point here is I got to thinking about, is this an appropriate time when a company or an organization or a team is making a fundamental shift, it's kind of been in a hostile environment, it's managed to get up and go, move on, is it an okay time to choose to leave? And I think it is. I think we need to, and I think we need to celebrate that, right? Because the cheaters didn't win, but in human life, they're gonna go off and start startups, and they're going to do a different kind of work, and they're gonna change other environments, and I think that's a cause for celebration. And then what about the martyrs? What are they gonna do with themselves? Because they're not gonna make it either. Their name tells us that. And I think on this one, um, <clears throat> one attribute I've noticed in my career has been this Moses paradox. So the, the slime mold that are leading that charge are gonna become a stop, and they're not gonna make it. But they have a lot of power in the meantime. They've got the influence to make a culture, they've got the ability to bring people along, and I'm curious about what Slime Mold can teach us around honoring these people better. Have any of you, I don't wanna call anybody out, but have any of you had a manager or someone that you worked with that you really admired, and you knew by the time you were done with that project that person would have to leave? I've been that person, <laughs> it's really unpleasant. Feels awful, but you know what? What's really amazing about that is that just because you've used the political capital to get something great done, or you're so exhausted, you're like, I'm out of here, the work and the identity that you've put into that moves on. You saved a species life, which is terrific. So I think when we start seeing these pieces come up, especially for ourselves, if you're in a role where you start to see things come up like this, you can decide to be a martyr and start looking for another environment more quickly. And that can ease that sense of transition and that sense of disconnection that you're gonna naturally feel. <clears throat> this is a little secret um, trivia point. Um, there's a, a Talmudic tradition called <clears throat> the Lamed Vav, that there are 36 righteous people that walk this earth, and if any of those 36 is, actually, if, if there's, no, there's not 36 at the same time, that the world will fail. And these people don't know who they are. And they're humble, but they actually are carrying the world on their shoulders. But this is what I thought was interesting for our field. They have pure and infinite empathy. Can you imagine what kind of information architect this person would be? There's gotta be one or two of them in there. So this is another role. If you happen to see someone that maybe is making this kind of change in the world and has that much empathy, take them out for a beer. Right? Be nice to them. We need those people. Otherwise, our earth is going to crash and fall. So let's get back to the survivors then. The survivors, at some point, the slime mold team's got to break up. Although, I did have a biological issue. I'm not a biologist. Don't even play one on TV. But the fact that they actually don't break up that way, guy. They, they do something different. It's okay. It's a great cartoon. Um, <clears throat> for survivors, there's a lesson we can learn from Maslow, right? Like, why did you survive, and what did, what did it take for you to be a survivor in this situation? <clears throat> I'm increasingly seeing companies and teams and individuals fill these out. What is your Maslow's triangle? What are you absolutely not gonna give up? What supports everything else in your stack? What does aspirational or full, um, <clears throat> the full self-actualization mean to you? And I'd invite you to try that. I think that that can go a long way for helping us better understand our environments and work. And then the survivors need to acclimate to a new environment. And that's not easy either. So let's go into the last piece of the talk, which is around exploring. And exploring's fun. Finally, we're in a nutrient-rich environment, right? Like now we've got food. We can actually do something with it. This is the dog vomit mold, slime mold that I told you about. Um, has anyone ever had dog vomit slime mold in their backyard? Excellent a hand. I want to talk to you guys afterwards. It's fairly common, apparently really disgusting looking. Yeah, but it also doesn't hurt, hurt um, your environment. So these are rich environments, right? Like these are the kinds of attributes we wanna make. These are the types of behaviors we wanna promote in ourselves so that our environments change to reflect that. And they look like green, restful, beautiful forests. Multi and yummy. <clears throat> what are some ways that we can go about doing that? Well, rich environments, and this is reinforcing a lot of signals we've already heard today or and at the conference, but the idea of play, right? Like collective, collaborative play, some playful sense of the environment and the world. 
and then also very, very simple and few rules for engagement, but a good, stand a good base of standards. It's interesting to hear how these are actually lining up against attributes around social site design, because it's the same thing. We're just making environments for people to be successful and productive. <clears throat> There's four areas that, four different approaches that I've seen work, and I wanted to share those with you today. And all of them promote and reinforce this idea that what you do in your environment actually helps it meaningfully change. So let's go through those. This is a, a book by Haken Bay. It's um, a little bit on the edge as far as uh, it feels a little bit more anarchistic, and that's fine. Uh, it's probably one of the major insights for starting something like Burning Man. It's a temporary autonomous zone, and I just love that phrase, right? Has anyone read, I'm just curious, anybody read this? Oh, you gotta read it. It's really weird, it's, it's strange. Um, but his point was that there's ways to create these areas of like poetic anarchy, which is just an interesting cross phrase. And what happened is these collective environments started to come out of this. They're outside of formal control, so interesting things can happen. And when we take a look at some of the social networks, we can see this stuff happening, right? Like the very simple rules allow for this huge blossoming of creativity. And here's some companies that have actually done that structurally. Any company that has a skunk works or an R&D place that's not heavily, heavily structured, that's more around exploration, is already starting to hint at this. And then Whedon and Kennedy, which is a branding firm, um, very well known for their early ads in uh, Volkswagen and Nike, actually have a slime mold award. It's 3,000 bucks they give to someone who has done great work to go off and make something with 3,000 bucks. You can do anything you want. One guy wrote a book, I think it was, um, Cat is not God spelled backwards, so that or the other way around. And, uh, and then it actually went on to be published and did quite well for itself. So it does, but that's not the point. The point is there's this freedom to do it. And then take a look at Google with 20%. 20% of what they spend their time doing is around projects that they understand that they personally own and that they participate with. 20% of their time. When companies, when we can start doing this with our companies, I think it'll meaningfully change the nature of our work and how we, get, and how we um, stay healthy and thrive in that environment. This is a great quote to go along with that from Brenda Laurel. She's at the California College of Art, uh, and she is um, interaction and kind of a big UX thinker. Um, and I love that. We're having fun, but we're not kidding. So it's a concern to hear so much pushback on the part of management and more traditional organizations that having a creative play environment just, it's like they think people are gonna be running down the hall naked and throwing toilet paper up into this, the fire alarms, right, in the bathroom. And it's just not that, it's not juvenile, it's not pointless, it's playful and it's open and there's learning there. So it's a great quote to fall back on. The next piece is listening platforms. This is a term that I heard recently. And like so many great terms that get um, coined, it takes a lot of existing stuff we already know and just wraps it up in a nice little box. Right? Some industries have been transformed when someone makes, for example, a very, very effective acronym. So <clears throat> well, uh, I've rolled this up into listing platforms of how are we going to help with our own sensing in a digital world nowadays, right? So we've got RSS, we've got Google, we've got Twitter, we've got Facebook. <clears throat> I'm not sure that we're as intentional about using those to listen for the kinds of signals around for our teams and our work as we need to be. And then also talk to people at the seams of the company. And I think that's a, that phrase has come out repeatedly. It's about people that are at those critical joins. You know, companies are like bumpy terrains. And sometimes there's someone who can see around a corner that you can't see. Or in a really highly structured company, you can climb up the ladder as high as you can and extend your visibility. It's a really good piece of insight I got from a colleague. Like go as high as you can because they have a whole different view of the terrain. And when you learn that, you get different signals and then you can send different signals. And then of course the basics like talk to people, be nice, try and fulfill on, on um, your commitments and be clear when you're not going to, keep your eyes open and watch the market, right? I'm just curious, um, <clears throat> anybody here have, how many people here have Google Alerts set up specifically for their product or their company name? Okay, it's a really easy thing to do. That just light sensing can make a big, big difference. I know, you can filter it if you work for a major company because that can be painful too. <clears throat> I have a question for you guys. <clears throat> Where's the difference between being self-employed and unemployed? Just, 
Just curious, anybody know? If you know, raise your hand, yell it out. The robe and the bank account. Put it out over here. In the mind. This was stated at South by Southwest. And I tell you, I was on Twitter at the time. I was not at South by Southwest. I've not been. And it was like someone screamed this in my ear, right? So this is one of the example tweets from it. These are the ones I received. And then that's pretty much the list two days later, which actually isn't a huge amount, except when they all quote the same thing verbatim, it's terrifying, terrifying. That's the power of these new channels. Can you imagine someone gets laid off and I know that, that this happens, et cetera. Usually they walk you out the door, you're on your iPhone like, woo, totally got laid off. Now your company knows, now everybody knows. It's actually a pretty powerful way that can change how companies choose to make those decisions for people, right? And how they choose to inform them of them. <clears throat> Here's the second to the last one, the idea of working out loud. <clears throat> the digital world is great and we love it because we can work remotely, etc. But it's amazing what can happen when you can physically change or have your environment respond to what you're doing. Right? So sticky notes, open design sessions, put things up on the wall, keep them up on the wall. Leah in her UX team of one talk talks about the inspiration library. Well, if it inspires you, who else can it inspire? Don't you want to work in a place with inspiration? Isn't that kind of cool? That's like the kind of things that we can put back into the environment that increase the mulch. They make that a nutrient-rich environment. <clears throat> this is Teresa Brazen, a colleague, and she's doing a visual capture of one of the workshops or one of the talks at our MX conference in San Francisco. And by doing this, she was able to not only have her own expression of this, but also have other people have a visual relationship with the, meeting, with the meaning and the content in that talk. And then we can share it digitally, it just went out from there. It's like that sea amp kind of starting to widen those circles. It's amazing the influence you can have when you actually start to work physically. <clears throat> and to bring it home, here's Jane McGonigal. Now, if we're gonna have a talk about um, how to survive and thrive in ever-changing environments, let's start with some of the fundamental design principles of that, right? What you need to be happy. Jane McGonigal is a, <clears throat> a game designer and a brilliant thinker um, very articulate around the nature of game and the nature of reality, almost like another line that we're starting to straddle as humans. And she's done a lot of research and a lot of thinking, a lot of, of um, discovery around happiness and the nature of it, and she's come up with these four principles that she thinks are transformative and meaningful. And I'm just curious, anyone have a different idea? Me neither. And this is the one that I think is the most crucial, connecting with people we truly like. Um, <clears throat> not, it, it's not a surprising message, but I think it's one, just, this is a phrase that I'd like you to think about and maybe even put out on Twitter or start out the amp on, and that is, um, would you rather be with good people, bad people in a good environment or good people in a bad environment? And now that we recognize that our people and our environments are kind of the same thing, can actually make some changes so that we don't feel trapped and controlled into those. Instead, we're participating and adapting them for ourselves. So this is, <clears throat> this is our new world of and. And everything that has been talked about today is about standing right there on that middle and starting to balance back and forth and make decisions around that world of and. Now we can actually be um, partners in it instead of feeling um, disempowered or feeling like we don't have our own fate and our own control. And so here's four simple things that you can take away with you today, thanks to Slime Mold. Make places and spaces for collective play. It doesn't have to be a lot. It could be an hour a month, if that's all that your current culture can afford. But you have responsibility to yourself and to others to do that. And work out loud. Once you start, it's a really interesting viral type of approach that people want to get their hands into that as well. <clears throat> Since with intent, I was thinking about um, the talk yesterday around um, IAs and whether or not there will be a conference next year, et cetera. And, uh, and the idea of sensing with intent, there was this category called cheerleaders, which is a little bit mocked, and, and that's too bad, because I think positive energy is, is kind of hard to get at. And if you're going to get it through the cheerleaders, thank them and celebrate them for that. But the thought was that there was just this, yay, me too. And I think that becomes to sensing and signaling with less intent. So I do believe that that can create quite a bit of noise. But if you're sensing and signaling with intent, and you're positive, imagine the changes those can make in an environment. And then the last one is constantly tune your behaviors. 
because by tuning your behaviors, you're changing those environments all the time. It's really easy after a project or after a real intense time of working when your own individual slime mold is picked up and gone somewhere new and now you've got a little bit of a chance to breathe. It's really easy to forget around sensing and reconnecting with people. So just maybe make a list, put it up there, kind of get back to level setting. <clears throat> and to close, this is the phrase, my sister's a bicyclist. She's actually quite good now. But when she first started, she was coming back from a, a trip with her husband. She'd been biking about six months. He was excellent. Hit some hills. She comes back, she's exhausted, sweaty, and she goes, Neil, when does it get easier? And he said this to her. He said, it doesn't get easier. You just get faster. <laughs> and she learned to reset her expectation. Now she wants to be fast. That's how she measures her success. Before it was like not feeling as tired or not feeling as pushed, but now it's about being fast. And when we habitualize a lot of these things, I think we can be fast too. Then imagine the blossom of those signals and the works and the environments that we can change. So overall, as, it, as a result of the um, IA Summit, this is my first summit. I'm really excited and, and thank you all for coming. It's kind of a little moment for me, but I gotta say, there. My stamp is, is just doing this, right? Like it's starting to really swirl and really blossom. And I think as a community, as an industry, as a, as a practice, these are some messages that we can reinforce for each other. You know, it's a little bit like triage. The ones that don't get pick up, fine, they can go away. But the ones that do, can you imagine what we can do if we use these principles to actually start to reinforce our own work? Maybe heal some bridges or build some heels or something? Because I think this is the kind of opportunity that lays, lies in wait for us if we can do that well. Look at this diversity. Look at the one in the middle. How bizarre is that, right? But this is a diverse ecosystem. They're making these incredibly beautiful forms. And if slime mold can do this, come on, can't we? Hell yeah. So let's do that. And thank you. To hear even more presentations from the 2009 IA Summit, point your browser to boxesnarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the 10th Annual IA Summit, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that will be of greatest value to you, our listeners.